Hello, and welcome to the Real Weird Podcast. October 24th, sci-fi and cosmic horror. So yeah, we're going to space today. We're going to be talking about one of my favorite subgenres of horror, uh, sci-fi slash cosmic horror. Well, okay, it's mostly sci-fi horror. We're going to be talking about The Endless, The Color Out of Space, Event Horizon, The Void, Alien, and Annihilation, as well <sighs> as well as going over a bit of background as to, well, you'll notice I did say sci-fi horror and cosmic horror in the episode description and in the title. So I guess the best thing I can do is just kind of explain the difference between the two. So sci-fi horror, pretty simple. It's just horror that has sci-fi elements or is in a sci-fi setting. So if you have something that's basically just a slasher movie, but in like a space station, well, that could be sci-fi horror. Um, some of the later Phantasm movies had, you know, elements of, um, you know, alternate dimensions, travel between the two, but nothing was explicitly magical. So a lot of those are also considered sci-fi horror, and we'll be talking about that in a few days. But essentially, if it's like aliens or robots or it takes place off-world, that could all be sci-fi horror. Cosmic horror, cosmic horror is a little different. It doesn't necessarily need to overlap with sci-fi horror, although it's usually seen as a subset of it. Uh, it gets complicated, and it's why it's sometimes called weird fiction, which is just kind of its own thing. But cosmic horror is sometimes also called Lovecraftian because it has the it has a lot of development from the, you know, American author Howard Phillips Lovecraft, who was most famous for, you know, writing things like, you know, The Call of Cthulhu, The Shadow of Smith, Dagon, The Dunwich Horror, all that, basically. Um, you know, I do feel like cosmic horror is a little better. No, I'm not just saying that because, you know, H.P. Lovecraft's idea of horror included squids, immigrants, and air conditioning. But... <laughs> But the thing that makes Lovecraftian or cosmic horror different from, like, regular sci-fi horror is that, again, they don't necessarily need to be the same thing. But there's a bunch of characteristics that have been associated with Lovecraftian and or cosmic horror, whichever label you prefer. You know, in contrast to the previous gothic horror genre, rather than blood and bones and corpses, a lot of the sort of horror texture is more gelatinous like it's slime and rot basically there's less blood and there's less blood and skeletons running around there's you know just general fear of the unknown and the unknowable is a big thing a you know common theme in lovecraftian stuff is just you know it's the cliche of things man was not meant to know but it's also just that fear and awe that you feel when you're confronted by stuff that's not within your, you know, something you don't have a reference for, something that's outside your ability to comprehend. The point of the... The point of Lovecraftian horror is to make humans insignificant in the story, basically. Jeez, how do I put this? Um... But it's not so much that the villains of the story are evil. It's it's kind of beyond good and evil is what they say. It's that they're so powerful that human morality does not matter to them. Cthulhu and all the like, all the old ones, were never portrayed as evil so much as just... They just didn't care. Like, we were ants to them, basically. Another common theme with... You know, cosmic horror, especially in like Lovecraft's original stuff, is that the protagonists are usually helpless in the face of these powers that, you know, they can't seem to deal with. And, you know, again, harping back to, you know, Lovecraft's personal life, you know, 
it's kind of pointed out how his human antag his human protagonists are usually well educated white New England guys that have no noticeable accent in the phonetic transcription. His human antagonists are literally everyone else. And kind of following along with his own like upbringing, he was part of this sort of like mildly wealthy upper class family. But they quickly kind of ran out of money and he basically he lost most of his stuff. Um, was kind of just living on a dwindling inheritance for the most of his life. So, you know, falling from a position of relative privilege into insignificance, falling under incompetence was kind of a, you know, was another big thing in his work because that was basically his fucking life. And, you know, there's a fusion of horror and science fiction, obviously, and there's presumptions about how, you know, it's sort of like the erosion of the nature of reality or your perception of it. Another common thing is just the idea of the protagonist. They try to warn people and they get deemed crazy. They start to believe it. And then at some point, some of them go, wait, no. What if I just hope that I'm going crazy because the alternative is worse, that the entirety of the human race is blind to what, into what's right in front of them? And this, I think, probably is the biggest one, especially for Lovecraft himself. It's the idea that, and I'm quoting here, that technological and social progress since classical times has facilitated the repression of an awareness of the magnitude and malignity of the macrocosm in which the human microcosm is contained. Essentially, like I just said, there's a calculated repression of the horrifying nature of the cosmos, Essentially, it's just we don't is that we don't understand how insignificant humans are to the rest of the cosmos because we have enough knowledge and science to be in a more advanced and more privileged state than our ancestors did, but we're still confined, still confined to this one planet. I mean, only a handful of people have ever been off, you know, the moon. I mean, sorry, I've ever been off. A lot of us have been off and so and weren't on the moon. What I mean is that there have been only a handful of people in space and even less actually gone to another, you know, physical body out in space. But, you know, it's that's Lovecraftian horror. That's cosmic horror in a nutshell. It's very pessimistic. It's, well, yeah, obviously it's pessimistic. It's horror, but, you know, it's kind of misanthropic in a way that show that tries to make you scared and make you uncomfortable with the idea of just how insignificant your life is on a cosmic scale. You know, it's got the nihilistic idea that, you know, you can die and the world will keep turning, so what does it matter? It It's not just that the alien entity you're fighting is powerful, it's that it's on a scale of power that you can't even really comprehend, let alone actually fight. The most you can do in a lot of these stories is just seal them away, or even worse, just hope they don't notice you. So, yeah, I hope I didn't get everyone bummed out with that, because I did want to close with the actual quote from Lovecraft that I think kind of sums this up. And this is a long one, but... And I do actually kind of love this one, just because of the imagery it gives you. Quote, The most merciful thing in the world, I think is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its contents. We live on a placid island of ignorance in the midst of black seas of infinity, and it was not meant that we should voyage far. The sciences, each straining in its own direction, have hitherto harmed us little. But some day, the piecing together of dissociated knowledge will open up such terrifying vistas of reality, and of our frightful position therein, that we shall either go mad from the revelation or flee from the light into the peace and safety of a new dark age. And that was ba- and yeah, that's basically Lovecraft. It's basically damned if you do, damned if you don't. Either you're going to search for f- even you're going to stay in ignorance and be comfortable or you're going or you're inevitably going to seek out the forbidden knowledge that you weren't meant to know and just go completely fucking insane from it. 
All right, so now that that lengthy preamble is out of the way, and I'm sorry for spending so much time on the cosmic horror element, but I did want to, like, make the distinction because I think, you know, I think if you buy into that whole elevated horror shit, which, you know, I agree is a thing. I just don't like calling it elevated horror. But I feel like cosmic horror is, like, one of the one of the coolest ways you can do that, if for no other reason than it allows you to be weird and play things a little by ear without it seeming like nonsense. So, you know, if you think you can pull off a good cosmic horror story, because I've been trying, it is hard. But do do so, because there's there's definitely something to be said for a story where you can compel people to read it or a movie to watch it when it's so bleak that there's basically no chance of it ever being a good ending, but you're still entertained. So now that that's out of the way, we're going to go through the actual movies here. Um, You know, I've did a healthy sample of stuff that's cosmic horror, stuff that's sci-fi horror, stuff that's a little bit of both. But we're going to start off with something that's just pure sci-fi horror. Um, the rest I'll let you all watch them and try and figure it out for yourself. So first off, we've got Ridley Scott's classic Alien. I would have included Aliens, too, but that's not as much of a horror movie. That's just like an action movie, and that's just a sci-fi action movie. It's like everything in the 80s. There's just more guns now. But yeah, Ridley Scott's classic. There's a mining spaceship called the Nostromo, named for a Joseph Conrad story. Joseph Conrad also wrote the, you know, famous Heart of Darkness book, which, you know, would later become Apocalypse Now. And they arrive on this uncharted planetoid to answer a distress call. The distress call was from another vessel, and per company policy, they are supposed to answer it, I believe. I think that's what the justification was. And... When they go down and search, they inadvertently take on board a hostile alien creature that has, you know, since become known as the Xenomorph. Because if you just call it alien, you're not going to know which one it is. So you had to give it a fancy name. Uh, And it was basically pitched as, in essence, Jaws in space, which it kind of is. Because it's not a particularly... It's not a particularly unique story... And what sells it is characters in suspense. So, yeah, it is basically just Jaws in space. There was this whole controversy over Dan O'Bannon's level of contribution to the final script. I believe he got awarded main credit, even though, you know, depending on who you ask, like, they hardly kept anything except the chestburster or Dan O'Bannon saying that, no, they did, in fact, keep more of it. It was kind of ironic, because when Dan O'Bannon did Return of the Living Dead he basically did a page one rewrite and just did not keep anything that John Russo put in it. But, yeah, I'm not going to spend too much time lingering on Alien because it's one of those ones, and I'm definitely going to be dealing with this again when I get to the uh, when I get to the Halloween franchise of the last two days of the month. But it's like, what can I say that hasn't really been said? It's got a wonderful cast. You've got the late, great John Hurt and Ian Holm. Uh... Doctor Who fans might recognize John Hurt as the War Doctor. Fans of Lord of the Rings might recognize uh, Ian Holm as Bilbo Baggins. Um, You know, older Bilbo, not the younger one from the Hobbit movies. You've got Yafet Kodo, who was, you know, in a lot of sci-fi 80s movies. And, of course, you've got Ellen Ripley, played by Sigourney Weaver. There was a whole lot of innovative special effects for the time. It's wonderful use of trick photography and model work. And I think one of my favorite like bits of trivia was just that there's this one scene where they're going into, I think it was the hold of a ship. Or maybe they were leaving it, I'm not entirely sure. But just to like make the scale look bigger, they used a bit of like forced perspective, and they actually had... like. St- like children walk around in like the suits to make the sets look bigger and more intimidating. So yeah, it was it was really amazing effects work for the time. And honestly, 
it really holds up. It's one of those things where it's just like the older Star Wars where the effects are so good that unless you're running it on like 4K and have a TV that's appropriate, you're not really going to notice any weirdness about the like model work or the effects at all. So yeah, if you if you're either a sci-fi fan or a horror fan, I would definitely recommend Alien, especially because one of the biggest things is that like a lot of good monster movies, they hide the imperfections in the the monster suit because when you see cuz you know, I've seen like behind the scenes of like the xenomorph and it does basically just look like a guy in a suit. But when you see it in the movie, it looks like almost like it's real. For some that was made in the seventies, it was it's very, very convincing. And I think this and it's definitely something to be said because this was like one year after the first Star Wars movie came out, I'm pretty sure. So I think it was really and as a sci fi fan myself, I I really appreciate the fact that this was just a great time. Because it was just showing that sci-fi could, in fact, be... Oh, no, wait, sorry, this was two years after the first Star Wars movie. But it took... But This was that time frame where, like, sci-fi was finally getting taken seriously as a genre. It had been, you know, just popcorn entertainment up to this point. It had just been the stuff of, like, cheap novel. Cheap novels, B-movies, stuff like that. I may talk about Star Wars at some point. After the hiatus ends, um, I still haven't decided what goes on with that. But, yeah, it's... Like, this time period basically showed they could be more than just low-budget B-movies. Anyway, sorry about that. Getting back on topic. We have The Endless. Now, this is a... Sort of a team effort from Justin Benson and Aaron Scott Moorhead, who were a pair of directors who have co-directed and co-written a number of movies, including Resolution, uh, sort of a romantic horror drama called Spring. Most recently they did the movie Synchronic, which had uh, Anthony Mackie from The Avengers. But... (laughs) This one's also fairly interesting, because in addition to being very a unique twist on the whole idea of, like, cult horror or, like, UFO cults. Um, This one's also sort of weird because it has a tie-in to Resolution, which was the movie that they made back in, I believe... Hang on, let me just check one second. I have it here in my notes. 2012. It came out in 2012. And And all the movies these guys have done have been great. So I definitely would recommend all of them. Um, it's also amazing because they didn't just co-write this. Well, actually, okay. They co-directed, co-edited, co-produced, and co-starred in the movie. Benson wrote the script and Moorhead was the lead cinematographer. So these guys were... You could definitely tell this was like a passion project. Although it could have just been labeled an ego project if it turned out poorly, but I would definitely say, <laughs> you know, passion projects are just ego projects that actually end up being good. But essentially the plot, and I don't want to give anything away, because this is definitely one of those ones where the plot is fairly freeform and kind of nebulous, and it's definitely something you have to figure out as you go along. But... Basically, there's this pair of brothers. They're, like, in their early 20s now. They're disillusioned with their lives in the outside world. And they return back to this sort of, like, UFO cult compound that they left when they were younger. The thing is, like, one of them remembers it more positively. The other remembers it as sort of this a death cult, basically. He basically thought he was, like, in Jonestown, like, before, you know, the Kool-Aid was being produced. But upon returning, nothing seems out of the ordinary, which seems to confirm, like, one of their memories. But they encounter a number of, like, bizarre supernatural stuff, including these sort of localized time loops. There's this rather hilarious scene where he chases this one guy into a bar and sees the guy hang himself. 
and then the guy just walks right in behind <laughs> behind him as he's hold, as he's trying to hold his corpse up. So, you know, it's got a nice bit of humor here and there. It's definitely an interesting watch. So, if you can find it, I'm pretty sure that as of writing this, yeah, it's free with ads on YouTube, Tubi, Peacock, Roku Channel, Amazon Prime, Plex, Redbox, and Crackle. So if you have any of those, uh, you should be able to watch the movie for free. Definitely, if you like it, try to find a Blu-ray. Because, you know, I, I've always been a sucker for supporting physical media when you can afford to and when you can find it. So that's definitely a, that's definitely one I would recommend. All right, next up we have Event Horizon, one that is very special to me as a 40K fan, but we'll get into that in a second. So this is like going back to what I said about, you know, the overlap between sci-fi and cosmic. This one, the original story was, the original script was like fairly similar to Alien, so much so that Paul W.S. Anderson, the director wanted to make it more like a haunted house movie in space essentially so but at the same time it also deals with forces that are like vaguely supernatural in a way so it's set in 2047 the crew of this exploration vessel called the lewis and clark is sent to examine the event horizon a ship that went missing a long time ago and spontaneously reappeared in orbit around the planet of neptune uh, it's got a pretty decent cast. We've got, like, Jason Isaacs. We've got, you know, Sam Neill. We've got Lawrence Fishburne as Captain Miller, who's the head of the exploration vessel. Um, and it's in a decaying orbit, so it's gradually getting close to the surface and will eventually fall in. So they go aboard, and... You know, after the designer, um, Dr. Weir, gives a brief explanation as to how the ship's sort of gravity drive works. This is the, this is the in-universe uh, example on how, explanation, I mean, sorry, about how the ship is able to travel faster than light. And they find all these like logs everywhere there's like evidence of violence and there's just no survivors so I don't know. I'm trying to explain this without giving any spoilers away. So all I'm going to say is that what they find is evidence of cosmic horror in one sense. And that is that some of the previous crew went insane and they find these like tapes. Um, some of them start succumbing to like weird hallucinations corresponding to their own past. Like Miller sees, like Captain Miller sees, like a subordinate that he was forced to abandon, uh, which ended up killing him. Uh, Weir sees like a vision of his late wife who killed herself, and they find the video log where they just see these like really, I'm just gonna be blunt, really fucked up visuals where it's like the crew is just having this massive orgy where they're also mutilating each other after, you know, engaging the gravity drive. And it actually just ends with, like, the captain of the event horizon holding his own gouged-out eyes in his hands and just, like, speaking in Latin. And this is where the 40K aspect comes in, because I, I like to say it's basically a shortened version of Tarkovsky's Solaris, if it was made into a horror movie, because a fair amount of this is 
Well, Solaris was a lot more cerebral, admittedly, but part of it is just the psychological aspects of dealing with the isolation of being in space, going in the direction of knowing too much and going insane from it. And that kind of plays into 40k too. So, to explain the So to explain the 40K thing, uh, Warhammer 40,000 is a sci-fi franchise by Games Workshop, who don't, who doesn't know, it's basically a sort of tabletop war game. And in that setting, one of the things that they have is called the Warp. Uh, traveling through it is basically their fast and light uh, method. Basically, imagine if hyper, imagine like the hyperspace from Star Wars, only it literally, um, only instead of like hyperspace it makes you go through literal hell and there's a possibility of like demons showing up and boarding the ship or you know even worse your ship itself becoming possessed so yeah the screenwriter did acknowledge that there was some influence of that and some fans even consider like event horizon to be unofficially part of the warhammer 40k media basically humankind discovers the warp and learns of its dangers the hard way Unfortunately, the last act is kind of rushed, which is basically the... It comes down to a whole problem with like the editing. According to director Paul W.S. Anderson, like Paramount wanted to get this like hit film um, out by August because Titanic was coming up in September, and they wanted to get like a... F- big hit before that. Uh, So he had six weeks to edit it, which he agreed to. He agreed to that, but between the rapidly approaching release date, principal photography was not done, a short production schedule, uh... Only a rough cut could be assembled. So, at two hours and ten minutes, it was overly long. Um, Some of the special effects weren't finished. There was a poor sound mix. And when I said, like, six weeks, like, normally directors usually have, like, a standard ten-week period just for editing the film's first cut. So yeah, 10 weeks just to like take all the footage, sift through it, use which takes, and then assemble a finished movie out of that. So yeah, the 130-minute run was, by the director's own standard, overly long, and it was poorly received. There were complaints about the extreme gore. Anderson claimed that some members of the test audience fainted, and the Paramount executives stopped watching the dailies before any of the gore effects were shot, so they were just seeing the complete film for the first time along with the audience. They wanted a shorter runtime with less gore. Anderson agreed to cut it down. But I am curious as to what the full movie would have been, because Anderson agreed that the first movie, the first cut was too long, but Paramount forced him to make one that, in his opinion, was too short and that the film would benefit from the restoration of about 10 minutes of footage, including some of the deleted gore scenes. Uh, But yeah, it it failed at the box office. I think it only made like 20-something million against a $60 million budget. And unfortunately, while... um, It was actually a really big surprise hit, uh, for DVD and home video release. But unfortunately, when Anderson and the studio became interested in doing like a director's cut for home release, a lot of the excise footage had unfortunately been lost. So there were some deleted scenes, but yeah, hopefully some of it might turn up at some point and we can get like a full cut. 
but I think Anderson said that much of it's gone forever. Um, I guess at some point, like a one of the producers found a VHS tape that had the original cut, the original rough cut on it, but that was like 10 years ago, and I don't think anything's really come of that yet. So, you know, fingers crossed, here's hoping we'll find that eventually. But yeah, uh, with my with my caveats about the movie out of the way, I definitely think Event Horizon is uh, worth a watch for sure. All right, next up is The Void. Now, this is very much a cosmic horror. Uh, I just want to say this up front for anyone that wants to uh, watch this. Again, Tubi, Crackle, Plex, uh, all have it for free. Philo, if you have a subscription. Amazon Prime Video says premium subscription, so I don't know what's entailed with that one. But this is an sort of indie cosmic horror film from Canada. It's co-directed by Stephen Kostansky and Jeremy Gillespie. And the plot follows this group of people who become trapped in a hospital. Um, essentially, there's this man, James. He flees from this farmhouse and escapes into the woods. Uh, there are these guys, Vincent and Simon, who are trying to capture him. Uh, James is noticed by a deputy sheriff sitting in his patrol car. Uh, and James is quickly carried to the hospital. Now, the hospital is a little bit run down. Uh, they're still repairing it from a fire. Um, we get some nice personal character tension. We've got, you know, Dr. Powell. We've got Beverly, who's a nurse. Uh, Kim, who's an intern. Maggie, who's an expectant mother. Maggie's grandfather, Ben. And Cliff, who's another patient. And one of the sort of character interactions here is that um, Deputy Carter's wife, Allison, works, estranged wife works there as a nurse. It's not initially made clear what exactly they were, you know, fighting about. But, you know, James is brought there and the hospital more or less comes under siege from this strange, like, hooded cult and these grotesque creatures that just start appearing out of nowhere. It's very much the... It's very much a focus on, like, you know, siege mentality and the tension that comes when you have a bunch of people trapped in one area, and there's just something weird going on that no one can really explain, so... It's not a terribly original um, appeal, I guess is the way of putting it, but it's still a wonderfully executed movie. It's just that most of this movie is a fairly slow build-up, so I can't really explain it as much as I would with a lot of the others, unfortunately. But if you have any of those subscription services I mentioned, just look up The Void 2016. You should be fine. And... The music is wonderful. The creature effects are amazing for something that only had about, I think, 80 grand for creature effects. I don't know what the full budget was. But this is essentially, it's a very 80s movie in a lot of ways, especially with the practical effects. So, yeah, I, I know I'm kind of skimming on this one, but it's definitely on par with all the others. All right. Next up, we have from the director of Beyond on the Black Rainbow, we have Nicolas Cage in The Color Out of Space. It's based off the Lovecraft short story of the same name. There's this strange meteorite that crashes on the Gardner family farm and begins to have a number of adverse effects on the region. Um, well, some of this didn't make it into the movie version, but although welcome at first, the meteorite causes the crop to come in far more abundantly, which is you know, why the gardeners like it at first, but it makes the crops inedible. 
It's updated for the modern day in a lot of ways. You know, they have modern technology, modern creature comforts. Um, there's a lot of good, like, character interactions between Cage's character and all of their... and his kids and wife. They really do feel like a family, so when it starts getting dysfunctional, it's really easy to notice. And well, it's narrated by similar to the original short story. It's narrated by well, he's not named in the story, I don't think, but his name is Ward Phillips. And in the story, he's from Boston, but here he's from the nearby town of Arkham, Massachusetts. Um, as I mentioned in the, as I mentioned in the Stuart Gordon episode, it's um, yeah, it, this is where Arkham Asylum from Batman comes from. It's named after Arkham from the H.P. Lovecraft stories. And you've got like, you've got Lavinia, which is a you know, reference to another Lovecraft story, The Dunwich Horror. She's like this, she's Wiccan, she's into a lot of, like, weird occult stuff. Uh, Benny and Jack are kind of more laid-back, normal kids. <laughs> Sorry, no offense to any Wiccan, seriously. I was considering uh, getting into that for a while. But after the meteor hits the ground... There's a bunch of strange phenomena around it until eventually it disappears. And, you know, in addition to just sort of manipulating the time and perception around it, uh, mutations of the wildlife, like the groundwater takes on this sort of oily sheen and it begins to glow brightly. And the color just kind of, like... It shows up as this weird sort of glowing multicolored mist a lot of the time. And a fair amount of it is just... Again, it's the sort of breakdown of the relationships of everyone involved when they're dealing with this situation that they really don't have any comprehension for. Uh... I don't really I don't really know how to explain it much more. All I'm going to say, I guess, is just that there's this hippie squatter named Ezra who's played by Tommy Chong. But yeah, this one's on Shutter as far as I know. You can probably rent it for like 3 bucks on YouTube and Vudu as well. But it is definitely one of those ones where a big part of it is trying to distinguish between what's real and what's not real because, you know, the characters are having a lot of trouble doing that. But overall, it's worth a watch, and it's not, not overly long at all. All right, saving the best for last in a lot of ways. We've got Annihilation. Starring Natalie Portman, directed by Alex Garland, who also did, you know, Ex Machina, uh, most recently did Men. He also did the... He also did the screenplays for uh, 28 Days Later, uh, Sunshine, and I believe he co-wrote the video game... Uh, Enslaved Odyssey to the West, if anyone remembers that, and he was a story supervisor on uh, the 2013 Double May Cry game. And again, unfortunately, this one was a box office flop. The budget was between 40 to 55 million. It only grossed about 43 million, unfortunately. So now. Essentially how this works is that there's a story... That, sorry. There's this group of explorers entering this 
zone that's just called the Shimmer. It's this big, mysterious quarantine zone caused by an alien presence, and they call it the Shimmer because there's this iridescent, misty barrier around it. And I guess the... I guess Gossamer is probably the best way I can describe the way it looks a lot of time. If you've ever seen, like, a close-up picture of, like, dragonfly wings, that's basically a good way to put it. And they go in there trying to figure out exactly what what the hell is going on with this place. And according to Empire Magazine, I think the theme in... In the theme in the movie could be summed up, according to them at least, as depression, grief, and human propensity for self-destruction. I partially agree. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of interesting influence there. So first off, it's based off a 2014 novel by the same name by Jeff Vandermeer. It's part of the Southern Reach trilogy. It's the first movie, actually. And we have our main character, Lena, She's a biology professor and an army veteran, and her husband, Kane, was deployed on a special forces mission inside the Shimmer. And a fair amount, and there's a subplot in the movie where we find out that she cheated on him, and now she feels feels like shit about that, especially because she thinks that Kane kind of accepted this sort of expecting it to be a suicide mission because of that. Now, here's where the weird part comes in. After being away for a while, Kane just shows back at home and then starts having convulsions. And after Lena calls an ambulance, some, like, government forces divert it to some kind of secret facility. And this is where we get a little more background on the Shimmer here. We have a psychologist named Dr. Ventress. She tells us that the Shimmer has been expanding for about three years. Uh, there is a meteor at the center of it. Kane's team exploited it, explored it, sorry, but only he returned. And now he is comatose, so they're not getting any information out of him. So Ventress is putting together this team to go explore right they're launching a new expedition she wants lena to come along and she joins mostly to find answers as to what happened to kane so there's also ventress again she's a psychologist we've got uh josie who's the physicist we've got cass who's a geomorphologist uh it's a subset of geology essentially that has to deal with you know, getting information based on terrain features and rock formations, and Anya, who is a paramedic. And this is where the movie starts getting really, really weird with the surroundings. You know, uh, The group wakes up and realizes that they've already traveled several days after they've entered, but they have no memory of getting there. All the wildlife is mutated... There's like these weird looking bears. There's an alligator whose teeth looks like shark teeth. Uh, They reach this like abandoned military base. And (laughs) there's a whole bunch of bodies that are overgrown by these weird looking types of fungus. And they find a video of Kane cutting open a soldier. And they get a close up and... Even though the soldier's dead, his intestines are still like writhing around like they've got snakes inside of them. So that gives you some ideas the whole whole weirdness aspect of this. Now, this is a very loose adaptation, apparently. I haven't personally read uh, the Southern Reach trilogy. I haven't read those ones. Uh, Garland took it in his own direction with Vandermeer's Blessing. Uh, there is some influence from some other short stories and movies, I would say, though. The Color Out of Space, obviously, the original short story has a strong resemblance. Um, 
the original book was the original like Annihilation novel. Um, the author said that he was more influenced by J.G. Ballard, who um, had some really like controversial dystopic sci-fi stuff and drama, like The Drowned World. Uh, he also wrote the novel Crashed, which Crash, which got adapted by David Cronenberg, High Rise, which got adapted by Ben Wheatley, and Kafka was also a big influence on Annihilation. Actually, one little side note before I move on. J.G. Ballard also wrote the book Empire of the Sun, which got adapted by Spielberg, so it's that's also where you might have heard of him. But I think personally what gets me is that as other people have pointed out, there's some similarities with the sci-fi novel Roadside Picnic, which was written in the 70s in the Soviet Union by the Strigatsky brothers, Arkady and Boris. It was also adapted into a movie called Stalker by Andrei Tarkovsky. And in that one, what essentially happens is something very, very similar. There's this exclusion zone, basically, and we find out later in the story that it's from alien artifacts. The analogy that gives the book its name is that one of the stalkers involved, stalkers being people who sneak into the exclusion zone to try and steal the artifacts to profit off them, one of them compares it to the idea that this wasn't like a blessing or a curse. The aliens didn't mean to punish us for anything. They didn't mean to reward us for anything. They just stopped by here and send, similar to just leaving trash on the side of the road with a roadside picnic, just left and didn't bother cleaning up after themselves. And they're just so much more advanced than us that anything getting slightly misused would be catastrophic for us. And there's the whole theme about, well, as I said, some people have said that a theme of the movie is propensity for self-destruction. I agree, but I think the biggest theme for both Roadside Picnic and Annihilation is just curiosity. Because exactly what they're going into to do is just research. There's not a really a concrete goal in mind. It's just trying to get as much information as they can. They're not there to conquer anything. They're not there to rescue anyone. They're just there to see what they can find. Consequences be damned. And it goes very poorly for them. Spoilers. <laughs> you know, curiosity killed the cat. But we, but we still feel that innate drive to go do that because... That's what makes us human. That's how we graduate from hunter-gatherer to agricultural society and then later to industrial. It's the reason why we don't have to live out in the woods anymore. <laughs> although we've, it's, although for a lot of us that would be a lot more appealing at this point. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, you can't fault people for being curious. You want to learn, and sometimes that learning has to come at great personal risk or cost for either yourself or other people. So there is... I, I, I know this film's got problems, I know. Um, I would also recommend Stalker, but I'm going to caveat that by saying you need to be in the right mood. It's a very slow, very meditative, very philosophical and cerebral movie, so if you go into that expecting action, you're going to be horribly disappointed. But, yeah... Annihilation's got its problems, but I'd say that's the biggest thing for the appeal for me, is that aside from, is that beyond the cool creature design, behind the stellar performance, behind the borderline psychedelic special effects and set design, there's a very, there's a very basic and very fundamental appeal to what it is to be, like, a human in a lot of ways, is just wanting to know more. Anyway, I <laughs> I am going to get out of my pulpit now because I'm pushing 50 minutes at this point. Uh, I know I've done longer, but, you know. Uh, so tomorrow we're going to be cutting it a bit shorter. 
A friend of mine actually recommended the Fear Street trilogy on Netflix, and I actually just got around to watching that. So I'm going to be talking about that. We're doing a sampler episode after that uh, on Wednesday. Then we're talking Phantasm, then Into the Dark on the 28th, uh, the Into the Dark series for Hulu. Then we're doing Five from Lucio Fulci, his Gates of Hell trilogy, New York Ripper and Zombie. And then finally, 30th and 31st, as I mentioned, we are closing up the we are closing up the month and regrettably putting the show on hiatus after those because we're going to be closing up with two episodes about the Halloween franchise since you know Halloween Ends just came out this year. Uh, first one is going to be what I call classical, so the sorry, so from the original up to Resurrection, I'm not counting Season of the Witch because I like it, but it's so different from everything else that I'm kind of considering it its own thing and not counting it. And then the final one, we're going to do both the zombie movies, uh, 2007, 2009, Halloween, and Halloween 2. And then we're going to get into the David Gordon Green trilogy, the requel trilogy, as a way to wrap everything up here. Unfortunately, as I said after that, we're going on hiatus because I just don't really have much time to do anything now. So so I'm glad for anyone that's been sticking with me. I'm happy you have been. I'm signing off now. Bye-bye.